Thanks for tuning in to the Hooks Baseball Podcast. This is Michael Coffin speaking on the show this week. Dan Reiner welcomes Scott Malone, head baseball coach for Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And J.D. Davis reaches out to Casey Lane, owner of the downtown Staple House of Rock, a tremendous forward-thinking partner of ours that does great things in the community. But uh, a heavy hitter to lead things off, my partner uh, for Hooks Baseball on the radio, Mr. Gene Kasprick, is here. Gene, thanks for coming over, man. Michael, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Literally, you came over. I've been looking forward to this interview for such a long time because for, I guess, 11 weeks now we've done the podcast, but we've done everything remotely from my house and connecting via Zoom and all the other different outlets out there. Uh, But it's nice to have you here in in the backyard. You live about five minutes up the road, and, and you made some time for us this afternoon. Yeah, we're neighbors, and um, for those concerned, we are social distancing. We are six feet apart and enjoying the nice evening um, weather here. The sun's starting to, to set, the long shadows in your beautiful backyard. It's, it's nice to be here. And it's it's not weird. It's apropos. I saw J.D. Davis about 20 minutes ago. I was out doing a walk. Another neighbor. And he was coming in, and and uh, J.D. was like, how'd the interview go? And I'm like, no, Gene's <laughs> coming over late. He thought I was at your house walking back. Oh, okay. He's like, where's your microphone? Like I would just schlep all that stuff over there. But uh, yeah, well, that would have been nice. Did I, you I, did you run? Did you walk? Did you drive? I did drive, yes. All right, very good. Well, uh, I, I say heavy hitter because uh, – you know, it's it's been a tremendous experience of mine to have you on the radio. Uh, you have done Hooks Baseball broadcasting for how many years now? Fourteen? All but one. All, uh, but, all one. but the first year. Wherever we are, we've been through 15 now, right? That's Full right. Full seasons. And so, it, so it would be 14, 14 seasons. years. Yeah. 14 seasons. And uh, your day job originally was an educator, obviously, and a tremendous baseball coach, three state titles over a 29-year run as the uh, head coach of the uh, Sinton High School Baseball uh, Pirates. So we're, we're very pleased that you could be here. And, and I wanted to get into your background and, and into your story a little bit because, um, you know, every time the, the topic comes up about Coach K and we're on the radio, you quickly deflect, which is your nature. But also we have a game going on. We're broadcasting, Right. right? And you made the comment a minute ago that uh, for the first time we're actually facing each other while we're talking into a microphone, which is unusual. But uh, but now it's it's not about the game; it's about it's about Coach K, which is I'm I'm sure very daunting for you to think yeah, about. Yeah, I'm really comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, first off, what what what's your Twitter handle for folks who who want? My Twitter know? handle is Gehrig, as in Lou Gehrig. Right. 1B as in first base because Lou Gehrig played first base. And when I thought that would be a great handle, he is one of my idols, not so much as a player, but just the way he handled his situation. And Pride of the Yankees was one of those first classic movies that I remember seeing as a kid. And I've never really been a Yankees fan, but I was always a Gehrig fan. And um, so I thought, well, that would be kind of cool. And then, of course, you, you get to the Twitter game you know, guys my age who got to the Twitter game a little late, and so the the You're handle good on Twitter though. Garrig, you know, others had grabbed it before me, so I had to figure out how can I use Garrig, and I said, well, let's just see if he if first base one B will work, and it did. So that's how, how that? I got there. Yeah. Would you say that Lou Garrig is your favorite player of all time? 
I think that I have most the most respect of any player that um, in in Major League Baseball history would be Gehrig for the way he played the game, the numbers that he put up, and then of course the way he handled the situation with um, with the ALS and everything. And so, yeah, I would say most respected. My my favorite player growing up was Bob Aspromani. Aspro, yeah, yeah. and and. Aspro's still alive and kicking, and that would be a, a we dream need to get of him mine on the podcast to, to, to meet him someday. I, I have an autograph, and I just don't remember how I procured that autograph. It was I would have been very young, and so I just don't remember that incident. But I do have an Aspro Monty autograph. I don't, and I wasn't. We weren't in the business of buying autographs, so, so I'm pretty sure I got it. You know, somehow, but I don't know. So, Aspro was your childhood hero. At, at what point did you realize how special Lou Gehrig was within the context that you're talking about and overcoming all of those adversities? Were you, like, uh, in high school? Were you in college? I, I think probably in college you, you come to think a little deeper about these kinds of things and, and, and um, just um, the ramifications of who he was putting together the numbers with regard to consecutive games played and then of course the um the way again that I I've already said that he handled those last years um he just um became one of those idols that I have I would say in college I really came to recognize him more than just a player well this is a, a baseball show first and foremost and a Corpus Christi show and all the wonderful communities that make up uh, the Coastal Bend, and, and we, we really stick to those topics primarily, but we would be remiss not to mention the mood of the country right now uh, after the, the senseless killing of, of George Floyd while in the custody of Minneapolis police. Floyd, a, a 46-year-old black man, was accused of buying cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. And, you know, just the, the scenes that we're seeing on, on, on television right now and, and on the social media feeds, it's flat-out gut-wrenching. And this is a tough time for the country right now, Gene. It really is. And we've been here before. It seems like we've been here so many times before. I was just, I guess, what, 12 years old in, in 1968 and went through, you know, the death of Martin Luther King Jr., just remember that vaguely as as a youngster didn't really because I was a kid impact me and such but you know we look we look back or we look forward now to here and you ask yourself yes some things have changed but there's a lot of things that just haven't changed and you you hope that you don't ever want to see rioting and looting and things like that. Those aren't protesters. The protesters are protesting correctly. The rioters and the looters are, are a whole different bag there, and um, no respect for them. But you 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 have to empathize with black Americans, and and as someone of, of, of white privilege, it's hard to understand what that is. And as you grow older sometimes, you begin to figure it out a little bit, but... Um, this is a tough time, and I'll, I, I don't know what to tell people out there other than you know, dig deep within and let's all come out of this a little bit better for it because it's it's not a whole lot of fun to watch. You're right. Well, and too often, I know, I'm just going to speak for myself, but we get caught in, in our little bubbles, our little worlds, and, and you start to think you're, you're sitting in your living room 
you know, watching Netflix and you're, you're still in the back of your mind thinking, oh, woe is me. We're not playing baseball right now. We're not at the ballpark. And then things like this happen and a long list of, of needless reminders of the inequalities in this country, in this world. And it, it's really jarring. And there's a lot of anger out there, and rightly so. And, and as, a, as a, a young parent, I want your perspective on this. I, I still have some time. My son is, is three years old, Joseph. Uh, you and Becky raised two wonderful daughters, Daryl and Bailey. Bailey, your youngest, entering her second year in college. When your daughters come to you and, and they talk to you about the things they're seeing in the streets, the things they're seeing in, on, on television, what, what are some of the things that, that, that you can do as a parent to, to get them through this and to continue their education a little bit? Our girls, we're proud of our girls. They, they are um, very outspoken about injustice and social injustice. And I think, you know, I don't know what you tell parents. I know all we did was we were quite honest and transparent and didn't try to shield them or hide them from any of the awfulness that exists in the world other than just explain to them that this is why this happens and it's not right necessarily and it's up to everyone to do what they can to make change for the better. Um, I think the worst thing you can do is try to hide your kids from things and try to shield them and prevent them from seeing the awfulness that does exist in the world and there is some awful stuff and so you just have to explain to them in terms that they will understand with regard to what age they are and help them to to empathize for those that are in those kinds of situations and and not to get off topic because i i think it's in keeping with this theme anyone who's listened to our broadcast on a semi-regular basis knows that that you have a bit of of wanderlust as it were uh, how many how many countries have you been to gene <laughs> i don't know i don't know if you I, had I, to, I don't have a board up well, on the if you had to like uh, let me what let is me, it 20 you know those is facebook pages where people post um how many states they've been to and everything i did that once and i realized i've been to more foreign countries <laughs> than than states in the united states so but I didn't think of it as you, when you asked the question, but I do think that the travel is a significant That's part, what I was getting part of the experience of growing up and recognizing. I mean, it's in, in our country. It's such a big country. And my mother was the world's worst. God bless her soul. I would try to drag her to places, you know, come on, mom, let's, let's go. We're going to Paris. We're going to Rome. Let's go to Poland. Let's see the motherland and everything. And all she would ever say, honey, I haven't seen all of the United States yet. Why would I want to go there and there? And I said, mom, if you're waiting to see all of the United States, you'll never leave the United States. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, I think that that has helped. Our, our kids have traveled a lot um, internationally and have made a lot of friends in other countries. And um, so I think giving them a more of a world perspective as opposed to you know, a local perspective lends or tends to make them a little more open to other ideas. What made you want to travel as much as, as you've traveled? I, I think it's it'll be silly, but I kind of think it was James Bond. I wanted to be James <laughs> Bond. I remember growing up. You and, had the car, right? Yeah, and Sean Connery was running around in that Aston Martin, and they were in in um, Cuba and um, 
all over, you know, just exotic places. And I said, I want to go do that. And um, I, I never really got too far as far as becoming a double lot spy. <laughs> but, um, but I just, I think seeing movies and all those exotic locations and then having studied history and then becoming uh, a teacher of history, um, I always was interested in experiencing places that I would be teaching so I'd have a little more um, honest viewpoint when I presented it to students I didn't realize this until I went back into your file I don't know I have a file we have a file on Eugene (laughs) oh goodness and everyone talks about the street uh, the three state titles and rightly so back-to-back state championships uh, 22 district titles 10 in a row from 2000 to 2009 seven state tourney appearances, 11 regional finals, the list goes on and on. But you had a 10-year run as the Sinton High School academic decathlon coach. Is that right? Kind of. I was one of the academic decathlon coaches. And three coaches. state titles we had, in that 10-year stretch. Well, we had some really good kids and we had some great coaches. Um, what we were able to do is I was the head of the social studies department, so at the time – the way our program worked, the head of the English department did the that area of decathlon, science did that area, math head did that area. So I was head of the social studies department, so by default I had to be an academic decathlon coach. Not that I didn't want to be, I enjoyed it and loved, loved it a lot, but we took it seriously, the kids took it seriously, and um, yeah, we were pretty successful at the state level back in the day. We were the smaller schools, smaller schools now, I think, can advance all the way to a national tournament. But at that time, a state tournament was as far as you could go. So we won a few state championships back then. It was a lot of fun. What What are some of the What were some of the consistencies between Coach K on the diamond and, and Coach K in the classroom in terms of how you approach and, and dealt with students? Well, I think that you always have to first and foremost recognize them as human beings not as a means to an end not as a means to winning a game or a means to getting them to learn about the napoleonic wars you got to touch them and you've got you know it's it's an old cliche that you have to be able they have to recognize you as a human being and they have to notice that you care about them as human beings and as people not as a student or as an athlete and then once you have won them over and they realize that you honestly care about who they are and that they learn this material or they understand these concepts or they're able to perform at whatever God's ability has given them, then they're pretty much able to or willing to go out and do what you ask them to do on a day-to-day basis because they realize that the underlying reason that you do it is because you care about them and you know, you're it's the other saying is you're not teaching a subject. You're teaching human beings. You're not coaching baseball. You're coaching young men. Well, it's remarkable because every time we go out to lunch and these last 11 weeks with standing, we, we, you and I go out to lunch a lot. But it seems like there's always that comes up to the table and says, Coach K introduces himself again, and you guys reconnect because they were a former student. You know, that, that has to be a pretty fulfilling feeling for you, not only to see the students long after their, their career in high school, but that it's worth their time to stop what they're doing and go and approach you and, and thank you or just or just simply say hello. Yeah, you're right. It means a lot. It means that um, they 
they might have earned uh, you might have earned a little bit of their respect and they they want to come back by and say hello and just re you know, and they're will they're willing and able to touch base with you and they feel comfortable doing that because of the relationship you had with them as students and as players and so yeah i, I always hope that any of the any of farmer students and every once in a while a farmer student will come up and say hello and you know after <laughs> thousands of students i'll go <laughs> Oh no, <laughs> and um, and the name will escape me, and it's it's embarrassing, and but um, hopefully that doesn't happen too often. Well, I think I think I saw seven players from the '89 team that that won the state championship went on to become head coaches. Yeah, I mean that's Sounds pretty right. cool, right? Yeah, it's nice to see guys that um, move on in their lives, and maybe you've touched them in such a way that that has helped them choose a career and become successful in doing that. I'd probably, when asked, don't suggest very often that you go <laughs> you go into the profession unless you just love it for what it is because it, it, can, it can, you know, you know baseball is a cruel sport and just coaching at any level can be, you know, it can just rip you apart if, if things aren't, aren't going the way you'd like for them to go so um, yeah it's nice to see guys that have gone on and been successful and quite honestly we've we've played some of these guys when you know they had and they would call and they say hey I want to play sure and I would if I can recall I don't know that we've ever we Sinton ever won against a former player <laughs> it's always like how about that well you know well the uh, we're not exactly throwing the game. It's just that they they somehow get their teams really ready when they when they play us. Well, the idea is the student surpasses the teacher, right? I think you're right. And and this really stood out to me when uh, in March of last year when they renamed the Pirate Field Gene Kasprick Field in your honor, uh, Coach K. The uh, the Sinton Pirates, led by Adrian Alanis. Uh, were taking on uh, the Taft Greyhounds, led by Juan Buendia. So you have two guys that were coached by Gene Kasprick on the afternoon that they renamed the field Gene Kasprick Field. I mean, if that doesn't send chills up your spine, nothing will. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I think Adrian kind of arranged that. And that's two guys, too, that were members of state championship teams, um, decade or, or more apart, but – yeah, you had a couple of former state champions um, coming back, and um, yeah, that was a pretty special day. Um, it was. What were some of the things that were swirling around your mind before you went up to speak? Uh, I'm not good at public speaking, and, and I and you're I, a broadcaster, Gene. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just not comfortable in front of crowds, you know, with a monologue. Okay, right. And so I don't know other than I was just wanted to make sure that I conveyed to everyone that I was deeply appreciative. And more than anything, just the genesis of the whole project that came about ultimately with the school district changing the name of the field, it all started with former players. And, and that, that kind of touched me. It was, it, was, it was really nice to know that the renaming of the field really was a project that began and had its origins with former players that um, felt that it was something that should be done. Ballparks are special, and we're really pining to get back to them very soon. And it's interesting how the story of a ballpark also 
translates the program. And every every baseball coach that you meet, maybe because of resources, but on the high school level and, and even in the college ranks, they're so invested, they're so involved, they're at the ballpark constantly, and it's a direct reflection of the program and their students. And knowing the origins of Pirate Field, you know, a fenced-in pasture originally, that must be the kind of the ultimate uh, recognition to, to know that, you, I mean, you, there's something tangible that you can go and look at and say I was a, I was a part of that. It is. I'm really proud of that facility and really proud that we had the kind of players come through that program over the years that built and created a successful program that ultimately the the school district, the administration and the city parents and everyone were okay with one step at a time improving a playing facility to make something that was really appropriate for the level of kids that were going to play on it. And so you're right. It was, it began as, as pretty much, you know, that those first years, the, the restrooms were porta potties. And and this is a similar story in a lot of places. I think the concession stand was one of those Coca-Cola trailers that you pull behind and you just set up. That's a temporary thing. There was no press box. The press box was um, a table behind home plate sitting on the ground and and you're right it was um, a chain link fence around uh, around a pasture that was probably 85 percent sticker burrs and 15 percent bermuda grass well as matt rogers our uh, former colleague and, and our very good friend always puts it now it's one of the ultimate baseball palaces in the coastal bend so that's that's pretty cool yeah we're really happy with with the way the design turned out um the folks that um, take care of the grounds now are very proud of the work that they do, and so they maintain the playing surface. Um, it's probably my fault that it's still grass. No, it's not probably. It is my fault that it's still I grass. I love you, Gene. You're the man. There was a period of time there where we transitioned to artificial turf in the football stadium, and there was a discussion about the baseball field, and um, I was kind of against that. It's... I'm old school. I mean, you did have a manual scoreboard in left field we for did. how many years? We did for a very long time, and that was hard to get rid of because that was such a cool part of the facility. And the gentleman that kept score, both of his, his sons played for us. He would sit up there, uh, un- a little bit unlike the old scoreboards like at Wrigley where you were behind it. He he would sit on a track or on a like a gangway in front of it, and he'd put up numbers as things happened. I, I felt that I had to go to him to get permission to go to an electronic <laughs> scoreboard, and I did. And I said, you will sit in the press box now, and you will run the scoreboard from an electronic box. Oh, won't you, Mr. Berganski? And he said, yes, sir, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do that. And so we got his permission to switch over, and that was, that's was that been, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, actually, because they're talking about doing some changes now. I'm actually trying to promote the um, – we're trying to raise the funds to put onto the scoreboard um, a pitch counter because now you know sure. the high schools all have their pitchers are re- regulated with regards to how many pitches they can throw. So I go to a game and you're going, how many pitches do you have left and stuff like that because there's nothing up on the board. And I said, we need to get one of those. And so I was actually in the middle of beginning to pound on some doors and see if we could raise the funds to put that attachment on the, the um, scoreboard when um, – 
things kind of fell apart with regard to yeah. the pandemic and all of a sudden the economy kind of went in the wrong direction. Priorities shift. So it's kind of hard to, to knock on somebody's door and ask for money when the economy is, is kind of um, questionable at this stage. So we'll have to wait and see. Well, as someone who's listening to the podcast wants to help, what, what's, what can they do to help donate to the, to the baseball pro it, should they direct message you on Twitter maybe, or should they, they could direct call message the- me on, on Twitter that, you know, Gehrig one B, or they could just, um, Email me at my last name. You'd have to look it up. K-A-S-P-R-Z-Y-K. That's it. At UTexas, University of Texas, U-T-E-X-A-S dot E-D-U. So if you would, um, if you're interested, send me an email and I'll I'll touch base with you. We didn't get to talk about UT. No, we, we didn't. We didn't get to talk about Fall City. I probably I, we only got 20 minutes for this interview. There, <laughs> UT would have been great because I'm pretty sure I spent more time at Dishwalk Field than I did in the classroom. I know Amy Johnson appreciates it. That. Was it was such a great time to for baseball. Won a national championship there while I was there, and I knew some of the players personally. And that was back when the the, the facility was only a couple of years old, so everybody wanted to play. And and Coach Gus never wanted to leave Austin, so every game was a home game, other than con- <laughs> other than the conference, conference road games that you had to leave. And so, you know, and that was back when they were playing 60, 70 games. So there was probably fifty home games a year. I, I don't think you I'm were ever. I was probably at almost every one of them. I loved it every minute of it. I take my books, and you know, that's one of the great things about baseball. You could read between innings. You can do a little homework and. Still have a great time. That's awesome, man. Well, I guess on Gene Casperick Part 2, we're going to have to talk about you being the, the most handsome and the best dressed and the, the class president <laughs> and the editor of the yearbook and a five-sport letterman at Falls City High School. How about that? Yeah, and that's tough to do when there's 29 people in your graduating <laughs> class and half of them are ladies. <laughs> Gene, thanks for coming over, man. Uh, it's a pleasure, Michael. It's always a pleasure. And let's get back to playing baseball. Hi everyone, this is Dan Reiner, joined this week by Scott Malone, who's in his 13th year at the helm for the Texas A&M Corpus Christi Islanders Baseball Club, his first head coaching job after spending time as an assistant at UNLV, UT Arlington, and UTSA. Coach, thanks so much for joining us this week. Dan, thanks for having me. Strange, strange times in the world. Probably the, definitely the most difficult spring I've probably ever had as a coach or a player. It's interesting times for sure. Yeah, and of course, with the season being postponed, we'll go into that in a little bit. But I wanted to start off this interview with the the pressing subject of race relations in our country. And as you know, as I know, as anyone listening to this podcast knows, baseball is one of the most diverse sports in the world. And of course, as a coach, you've coached countless black players, players of color. So I'm curious if if you've reached out to any of your players, past or present, any other coaches, and what your message might be. You know, I I haven't reached out specifically to to my team yet. Uh, You know, I was traveling over the weekend, so just like everybody else, I'm... Feel like I'm I'm kind of in the back seat and I'm I'm watching things happen, watching the world move around me, and um, and and trying to gather, you know, as a person who is a leader of young men and, and in charge with developing young men, you know, what what is my role? What part can I play in this? And 
um, you know, talking to several different coaches and everybody has a different opinion. And one of my best friends is, is a minority head coach. And then he reached out to me direct, like, you know, Hey man, I am a minority. Is it my job to speak? Are people waiting on me? And you know, there, I'm just not sure there's an answer. There's definitely not a playbook. Um, you know, I, I think in simple terms, in simple terms for me, um, you know, it's, it's about leadership and it's about um, trying to unite um, people, trying to bring people together. And to me, the, the worst word right now is division, is, is letting people be, you know, players, kids that I work with, 18, 20, 22 year olds, letting them feel like they're stuck on an island by themselves. They're stuck on an island with a group of two or three people and don't have anywhere to go or anything to talk through. And, and again, I, you know, I don't want to dig too deep, but it's just about bringing people together, um, understanding that we all have shortcomings. And, and I tell you, it's something I've said that's, that's going to be hard to fix. I, I, there's bad people in the world. There are. And, and I'm not sure they're going away. Um, but, you know, obviously we've, we've got to figure out, um, as a leader, you've got to figure out how to move the conversation forward and, and how we all have to be open to, to each other. Um, you know, and, and that's, it's not easy to do. And, you know, you and I talked about this just a little bit before we started, but, um, you know, you, you want to stand up and be in front as often as you can. That's my job as a leader. And, you know, this is one of the most difficult challenges, racism in the United States. It's something you want to believe is it's not out there. It's not out my front door. No, no, it's not. But we all know it is. Um, so hopefully just we can all come together. And, 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 and I do agree it's actions, not words. I really believe that. We have to, we have to hold each other accountable to, to stronger actions. And that's where I would take the conversation for sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, for us at The Hooks, we're also having that internal discourse about, you know, where we stand as community leaders. And I think that The Hooks and The Islanders are both in the unique position in um, our community. You know, Corpus Christi, we're kind of that beacon, two of those beacons for our community. You know, athletically, people come to us um, as a source of leisure, but we're also out there providing a community service a lot of times. So, you know, your, your baseball program perhaps sees the greatest benefit from an athletic standpoint, but I think that for us together in partnership, you know, whether it's us working with the university and, you know, professors, getting professors on this podcast to preach their messages or, you know, informing the public, whatever it may be, I think that, you know, we all have uh, a duty and it's just figuring out what it is to help with a community that is, you know, overwhelmingly minority. I, I'm with you. You know, I, when I look at the big picture, I love being in sports um, because I think sports make the world go round. And on the other end, sports and, and, and I can say it this way. So hear me out. Sports don't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, if the Reds and Pirates play tonight, hey, man, four to three, one team's going to win, one team's going to lose. You know, but as much as I say on one hand, like I don't know what the Hooks record was last year. You know, I don't know what my record was last year. Um, all these wins and losses that move the needle every night. It's just sports. It's just a game. But 
But, you know, I've got two young kids at home. Sports is where they develop character. Sports is where they learn, learn to, to win and handle that, lose and handle that and play with other kids and be around other coaches. And so I think sports does make the world go around on one hand and, and, and anybody can play. The tallest kid in class can play. The shortest kid in class can play. The skinniest kid in class can play and the heaviest kid in class can play. And, you know, the, the kid with the darkest skin can play and the kid with the whitest skin can play. And that's, that's where sports is the equalizer. And, 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 and I love it for that. I love being in, in that area where my job's to open doors for kids and whether it's kids that get drafted in the third round and go play minor league baseball or kids that go on to work for the border patrol, you know, and, and, and everything in between. Um, it's just part of helping kids develop and, and move them down. And, and you're right. I, Islander athletics and the hooks and what we do in the coastal bin is lots of times we're the front porch. We are, you know, go look at the banners that hang around my campus and you're going to see boys and girls of, of, of every nationality, race, skin color. Um, so it's, it's a great spot to be in. We're in a tough time right now that, you know, we're very divided and, and I think we've got to do what we can to, to get closer to being unified again. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to, to the athletic standpoint of that conversation of, of our partnership really together, the Islanders, I think, are fortunate in that you, you guys play in a, uh, in a market with a minor league baseball team and, and are afforded the opportunity to basically rent out our ballpark or, you know, whatever, use our ballpark to play some of your games. And that includes the Clayburg Classic, which has happened for, for several years, going back uh, to the opening of the ballpark and, you know, select other games. Last year, there was the, you, you guys beat uh, UT at Whataburger Field, and that was, of course, a big game. So what, what impact do you see uh, our partnership between the Hooks and the Islanders having on your players in that regard, you know, being able to play at a, a professional double-A ballpark, you know, one of the best facilities, I would say, in, in minor league baseball? Let me start with the fans first. You know, I can't tell you uh, more than a handful of times I've been doing this for 13 years, but I'll have people in the community that'll come straight to me like, Coach, how many games you played at Waterburger Field this year? Uh, four. Okay. Well, those are the only times I come watch you. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Well, hey, man, we're glad to have you, you know, for those four games. And, and, and I just think my point is, Waterburger Field. Maybe I'll steal your word. I think you used the word beacon a little bit earlier. Waterburger Field is a beacon of South Texas baseball. It is the beacon, you know, and is the the Taj Mahal of South Texas of baseball. And 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 yeah, this idea that that we get to go in there and play a handful of times each year, it, it helps bring you know big crowds out. And I I am very proud of the idea that that I am the division one sport um, in South Texas that can, I can bring the Longhorns down here. I can bring the Aggies down here, or UCLA or Oregon state or Nebraska. Um, I can do that. Um, I don't know that many other sports can, and, and I probably couldn't do it without Waterburger field. So, so it means a lot to me and my players. And, and, you know, I talked about the big side, Real quick on the smaller side, you know, every fall we have a uh, MLB scout day where about 20 MLB scouts come watch my kids work out for about three hours. And we've had several of those at Waterburger Field because, 
because it amps up the day. You know, it amps up my players. You ask what it means for my players get excited when they're when they're playing at that facility. And, you know, it's a it's an easy venue for those scouts to get in and out of. So it's not just game day, you know, that that Waterburger Field can move the needle for people that like baseball and, and obviously for my program. I think we were all looking forward to the Southland Conference Tournament re- returning to Waterburger Field in 2020. And obviously with the postponement of the season, that won't happen, but hopefully it returns someday. But the conference has already announced a format change for 2021 where the number one seed is going to host the tournament. How do you feel about that change? Well, let's back up to what we missed really quick. You know, um, uh, college basketball, I, the 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 March Madness, the 64, the make a bracket, the win and move on, losing you're out. You know, there is, it is such a unique three-week spectacle that, that, that just grabs every sports fan and, and even non-sports fans and reels them in. That's what a conference tournament is. It's that in basketball and it's that in baseball. And, and it's the eight best teams and it's a four-day, you know, round-robin knockout punch. And, and you just try to survive to the next day. And the, the players, you know, the ice gets so thin. The electricity in the air of is this their last game? And it's, it's the same thing for the fans. It's the same thing for the coaches. So it is this... It's this unique fight to the finish, you know, in, in four days where starts out and all eight teams think they have a shot. And, you know, we've been the eight seed five times in my 13 years and we've had to play the number one seed. We haven't lost in that game, you know. So when I say it brings out the best in everybody, I I am a good example of that. It brings out the best in, in everybody. And so... You know, I hate that we missed out on 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 the memories that would have been made this year. And every team in my league loves Waterburger Field. So now you move forward to you know what we're left with, which we've minimized down to four. They've announced that whoever wins the league will be the host. On one hand, I'm fine with it. I understand what we're doing. Um, I'm okay having having the tournament on a on a college campus. Uh, with a quote-unquote home team, obviously it makes the mountain a lot higher. I'm so proud of us. Our best days have been, whether it's been beating the Longhorns or pulling the eight against one upset in the tournament, you know, would would that be as easily done if, you know, if we're having to play the number one team on their home field? Probably not, you know. So it's going to completely change the vibe, the feel, the challenge now being a four-team tournament, but um, you know it comes down to budgets and cost, and 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 again, I hate to say it, but in the summer of 2020, and and going forward for the next year, two years, that's going to move the needle. Is what do things cost? What can we fit in our budget? How can we minimize what we're doing? And and and, and so this tournament ends up taking a little bit of a hit, but. It'll still be an unbelievable finish to the season, and, and now it'll be the top four instead of the top eight. You spoke earlier about having those pro day, that, that pro day in the fall, sometimes at Waterburger Field, and the yeah. opportunity to have your player. You've had 12 players drafted from, from an A&M Corpus, and you know with MLB announcing this year that it, the draft is only going to be five rounds, that cuts out 
a large majority of the guys that are on your team that could get drafted. We, we had Alex Sogard, a former hook and current Wright State head coach, uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago and got his opinion on it because his, his players are in the same boat. You know, a, a smaller conference, uh, a mid-major conference where a lot of the players on his team and, and your team alike would go in, the, in those later rounds, you know, the 20 to 40 rounds typically. Sure. So how do you feel about that? Is there a message that you've given your, your guys who, you know, the juniors and seniors who maybe were looking at that 20 to 40, even 10 to 20 range, who, who may not have the opportunity to see their name selected? Maybe they do sign, you know, down the road as a free agent or, you know, play independently, whatever it may be. But the opportunity to, to get drafted at least this year and perhaps in the next couple of years is gone. Man, you're you're exactly right. And um, you and I joked right before we started this that I like to I sure like to talk. And you can, you know, obviously any just about any of these questions, you know, I feel like we could sit here and do an hour on this and an hour on that. And, um, you know, let me start with me. I, I My claim to fame, I was a Texas Ranger minor leaguer and played at TCU and man, I was good. Man, what a good player I was and had an unbelievable career. I was a ninth round pick. So, you know, if there would have been five rounds my year, I wouldn't have gotten drafted. And who knows where my career would have gone or what would have happened to me. So, so, so I kind of was somebody who, who lived this, you know, and, and, and I do think about, I thought about that over the last month, what, what would my career have been like? So now moving it down to my players, I say this a lot to my guys. You got to see the whole board. You got to see the whole board. It's like a game of chess. You can't get locked in on one piece. You got to see the whole board. I'm wondering, I I really am, what, what's going to happen to baseball? What's going to happen to Major League Baseball? What's going to happen to Minor League Baseball? The The board is changing. The rules are changing. And 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 I don't know if it's MLB owners, uh, you know, are, are changing the way they want the minor league set up. And um, baseball is a game of failure. Believe me, ask anybody that's played, you know, we all know that. And, you know, minor leagues is a game of failure where, and what I mean is 10%, the, the 10, 15% of superstars keep moving up through the minor leagues and everybody else deals with failure and, and, and waits for their turn to either you make it to the big leagues or you don't, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I want all my players to get the opportunity that I did to put on a Rangers jersey, an Astros jersey, a Seattle Mariners jersey. I, I deal with kids that live for that. They've been dreaming of that since they were six. And now it feels like, obviously, those opportunities are getting smaller and smaller. And I have talked to all my kids that are draft eligible this year. And, you know, hey, if a team wants to take you with one of those five Five draft picks, I'm in. Let's do it. You know, let's let this team invest in you and start your future. And but the flip side is, if if they don't, and they maybe want to talk to you about a free agent sign, I just don't think that's going to get a lot of play right now in college baseball. I think our sport is growing, and I think kids would just as well come back and. And, and, and pretty much have a good feeling that college baseball is going to start again at the end of February. And, and they're not sure when minor league baseball is going to start again, probably next April. Um, but I think kids, I, I just, my, I don't think my kids are going to jump 
um, you know, to go sign a free agent contract and go play. I think they want to hear their name called in the draft, and and it's going to be interested not to see. We know where that's going in a in a week. Where's that going to go next year? Where's that going to go the year after? I think that's the that's going to be really interesting to see where minor league baseball goes over the next two or three years. Yeah, I agree. And again, it's it's good to have your perspective as as a coach of of these young men, and also as a former player and minor leaguer and like you said a ninth round pick yourself and just to, to gloss over I know you you know you uh, kind of brushed the dirt off your shoulder a little bit there but you were back-to-back Southwest Conference player of the year in the early 90s all-american status at, at TCU and you're in the TCU Hall of Fame so you know you're you're uh, certainly in Texas lore and I'm sure that helps <laughs> on the recruiting trail a little bit you know to well, it, 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 it does. And, it, you know, TCU's, TCU's been really good to me. I've got a big banner hanging. So when these kids I'm recruiting go play summer ball, I love it when TCU hosts a tournament because these recruits, hey, there's that Malone guy mm-hmm. from Corpus. And they'll, they'll send me a photo and, Coach, this is you, Han. So, yeah, that helps. And, and, and I do kind of jokingly say, man, I was good in college Yet I was just a ninth round pick, and um, and again, if you know, if even if they go say to ten rounds next year, whoo, man, I would have been on the bubble of of just barely being a draft, you know. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, one sports is just sports has got to come back, you know, it's got to come back strong, and 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 man, it, I hate to say it, like, I, but it gives you a reason to get out of bed. I. I want to know who the Rangers are playing tomorrow and who's up on the mound. And and, and people have that same passion for the Astros um, or the Pirates or the Yankees or whatever it is. And 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 it does. It changes my mood at night. If my if the Cowboys win or lose or the Dallas Mavericks win or lose or the Texas Rangers win or lose, man, that affects me. And 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 it just moves the conversation. And 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 I think it, it again. It unites us. Mm-hmm. I, I, I will <laughs> taking us back to our theme from the beginning. I think we need sports. We we need you know restaurants with TVs and and living rooms and swimming pools with TVs and it unites us. And I think we need it back. And baseball needs to remember what it what it is and what it can be. And and that trickles down to the minor leagues and that trickles down to college and and so on and so on. So it's had plenty of road bumps. It'll be back, but we're in one of those valleys right now, I can mm-hmm. tell you. Yep, for sure. So I, I want to end things, uh, end our conversation here, talking about your father who uh, passed away this past March. And uh, we at The Hooks, of course, pass along our condolences to you and your family. Uh, but he, he was an 80, 861-game winner, won a couple of state championships at Abilene Cooper and a 41-year uh, high school coaching career across Texas, several schools, a handful of schools. And now, uh, you know, you mentioned before you could you could go on for an hour about any of the conversation, uh, any of the topics we've covered. And I'm sure you could go on for days talking about your dad. Um, but if you can sum it up, what kind of impact did he have on you first as a player because he did coach you, right? As a player, sure. and then yeah. and then what insight he provided you as you navigated your coaching career. <sighs> You know, uh, one, when you read his bio, well, it makes you take a deep breath and it makes me feel like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, well, the number of games he's won, the years he's coached, 
gosh, makes me feel like I'm not doing anything over here. But the impact he had on me, you know, people ask me, man, your dad, what a baseball guy. Was he a pitching guy or a hitting guy? He was a baseball guy, you know, and he liked winning and and he liked the little things. And, and he wanted to beat the other team with a butt. He wanted to beat the other team with a steal. Um, you know, he wanted us to not strike out. He wanted us to be smarter than the other team, more aggressive than the other team. Like the, just some of those things that he could control, that we could control as players, that, that was his thing. And, um, you know, and then as it blends into my coaching and, and, and kind of what I got from him, man, he was one of the – obviously, I got a million phone calls. One of the best phone calls I got was from the guy – who took the tickets at my dad's games at Abilene Cooper. And, and back then, there, there wasn't like the front gate with the fancy, you know, he was down the street where you had to park on the street and he came mm-hmm. in this main gate. And that guy, I don't even know how many of our games he got to watch. He just stood out on the street and took your tickets. And he called me and, man, your dad treated me, you know, like I was the like I was the principal of the school, like I was the most important guy. You know, I'd come out there and whether it was on an off day switching out trash cans or sweeping under the bleachers, you would have thought, you know, that that I was the most important guy to that program. And, and that was my dad. You know, whether you were selling drinks in the concession stand, one of the one of the cheerleaders that was keeping the book for him. Um, or I'll tell you, you know, the, obviously you had courtesy runners back then. You could run for the pitcher and the catcher. My dad had those two courtesy runners and the rest of our team. He had those guys believe in. If we had the best courtesy runners, then we were going to win a state championship. If those guys could go out there, courtesy run, steal a base and score, then we were going to be that much better than everybody else. And that that was kind of, you know, the thing I've taken from him is that everything counts, everything matters. And, you know, it's Islander baseball is not the Scott Malone show, but it's the 15 people around me that make those wheels turn. And, you know, my student manager who does the laundry, we can't play our next game if that guy's not killing it, you know. And that's that's something I've gotten from him. And, and, and I think that's where we started this conversation and where we'll end it. It all comes down to how you treat people, you know, and and – and I think that says a lot about the people we are. And, you know, that's that's where my dad made me the coach that I am. Well, Coach Malone, I, I appreciate you taking the time and giving us some of your insight on these uh, these difficult topics that we're dealing with in America right now. And, you know, hopefully by next spring, everything will be uh, back to as, as much normalcy as possible. And we'll be able to see you guys at Whataburger Field. For sure. Dan, thanks for having me. And I love talking baseball anytime and any place I can do it. So this has been great. I appreciate everything you guys do. And, and, and I hope we can turn this into a good summer and, and, and get things going again and get the world back to normal and get our sports back. All right. And now we are excited to have a conversation with Casey Lane from House of Rock, great friend of the Corpus Christi Hooks. Casey, how are you doing? Man, doing great. Doing well, all things considered. Absolutely. Well, we're uh, we're excited to have you on. The House of Rock's a great partner uh, with the Hooks. We're lucky enough that during the season we get to eat eat some House of Rock pizza and and uh, pizza rolls once a week, which is a ton of fun, and it's always great food. But for those that don't know, 
Can you tell us a little bit of the history of House of Rock? How did you get started and kind of what was the genesis? What's your origin story? Yeah, so I can, I can all back up a little bit, um, a little ways before uh, House of Rock. I started um, actually at the Executive Surf Club um, right out of high school as a bartender and uh, slowly kind of made my way up the ranks there and, and uh, became general manager, uh, which is how I got into a lot of music. But back in those days, uh, the Executive Surf Club, uh, we were booking like the Robert O'Keens, Pat Greens, Randy Rogers, Cross Canadian Rag, we out of the Texas country uh, with a little bit of rock and roll peppered in. We were able to do some regional things like the Burden Brothers in uh, Blue October when they were first kind of on the scene. Um, and every once in a while we got to do like a Dead Kennedys or something kind of, you know, a left of center um, for what Surf Club was normally doing. Uh, so I was there about eight years, um, left and moved on to uh, Concrete Street Amphitheater where I was the uh, full-time talent buyer for about two years, um, uh, as well as other things. I mean, in this industry, I think uh, probably the same with y'all's. You know, we all wear multiple hats, you know, so my, my main job was talent buyer for uh, the amphitheater and the pavilion, and then I uh, helped out with the catering and the merchandise and things of that nature as well. Um, about two years into that, um, I had been talking with some uh, uh, friends of mine, acquaintances that were in the bar business who owned a couple of sports bars here in town, and they actually had uh, uh, taken out a lease and opened up House of Rock in July of 2005. Um, and so they had that place up and running for about a month or two. Uh, and into that point, they decided that they were um, not as familiar with the music business maybe as they, they thought they should be in order to run a successful venue. Uh, so we started talking at one point and I partnered with them in September. So House of Rock had been open uh, just a, a few months. And then uh, I got involved and partnered with them. Um, and uh, at that point, it was just basically a music venue. We didn't have a kitchen. Uh, we didn't have um, uh, kind of weren't doing all the things that we we're doing today. Um, we kind of had to crawl, walk, run before we got to where we are. A lot of what we did was, um, um, you know, touring bands, local bands, regional bands. Um, and it was a lot of uh, rock and roll and, and punk rock and kind of things that were a little bit harder edge than what I'd normally had done um, at that size venue with the Executive Surf Club. So uh, that's kind of how it started, you know, and then over the years we were able to add and, and remodel and, and upgrade a few things and, and uh, kind of branch out to different genres, different types of music, different types of touring bands, uh, different types of events and, and kind of branched out just from not doing um, music, but just kind of all, all forms of live entertainment that we felt would be great on our stage. Um, and it wasn't until... Um, years later that we put the kitchen in and, and uh, so the kitchen at this point is uh, six years old uh, we opened it i want to say uh, yeah six years ago so we, we put the kitchen in and uh, have become a little bit more of a restaurant so house of rock's been kind of growing and changing and, and morphing um you know since we've since its inception you know the thing that that strikes me about house of rock and and there's there's a couple of other businesses you, you know you mentioned uh working at executive surf club and and it's kind of great that um, you, you guys are kind of cornerstones of what goes on downtown and being able to work together and, and kind of lift everybody up downtown. But, but one thing that house of rock and, and that you guys do is that it's not just about, you know, getting people in for a concert or, you know, getting food. It's, you know, you're hosting, um, you host community events in, you know, inside you participate in things, uh, like the Dia de los Muertos festival. I know you played a big role in that and, and other festivals that come downtown. And, you know, for you, it seems like it's more than just, you know, having a business and getting people to come in there. It's about being, you know, an, an active member of the community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I enjoy Corpus, you know, I'm, I'm third generation, uh, from, uh, 
our family, I'm a third generation, our family that, that's been here in Corpus. I've got kids as well that are growing up in this, this community. And, and uh, you know, I love Corpus. I think there's a point in time when I was younger, um, particularly around the high school age, and my goal was to get out of Corpus and, and move to Austin or uh, uh, another city that had kind of more of what I would describe then as a, as a thriving music scene. Um, you know, in some life, you know, it's not, it's not a linear path. You know, a few things changed in my personal life. I became a young father. Um, and uh, which kind of kind of held me down to Corpus. And uh, looking back, that's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me is is, is being a young father and having to figure things out and, and uh, figure Corpus out. And Corpus has been been great to me. And you know, we, we you know, House of Rock uh, in particular. You know, when we first opened, as I mentioned before, we had the kitchen before we were so community involved. It was uh, real obvious to us that you know we were kind of the rock and roll bar at the corner that had a bunch of you know kids in black t-shirts with uh, you know long hair waiting in line to come in and see shows and you know people kind of develop a perception of what kind of place you are um, and realizing we were kind of being perceived in a certain way you know we made a conscious effort to get out and be more involved in the community um, got involved with Art Walk and the DMD um, got involved uh, um, you know with uh, K-Space and, and uh, personally got onto a, a couple of boards and, and committees and, and tried to do things to kind of enhance the art and culture type lifestyle here in Corpus that I think was always thriving and so it was, it was just fun for me to be a part of that um, and being able to watch things, as you mentioned, like the Dia de los Muertos Festival grow from about a, you know, a 300 person event and, and one block of downtown Corpus into a, you know, 20,000 plus event over uh, the course of several blocks downtown. It's, it's just amazing to kind of support, you know, Corpus as is given to some of these events. Um, and, and that's really helped us, you know, in, in the long term, you know, tie into the community and, and Corpus, I feel, is always given back. And, and uh, I think it just goes to say, you know, when, when you put a little bit in, you're going to get a little bit back out. And, and uh, that's a perfect example of, of Corpus Christi, you know, in my opinion. Um, you know, Corpus, I can, I love talking about it, but Corpus, I feel like is, is, um, you know, if you were to take House of Rock or several other establishments that we have in Corpus that are unique to Corpus and maybe put them in a Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, larger market, I think you kind of get lost in the shuffle with other venues doing other cool things. Uh, where in Corpus, you know, you kind of have the ability to kind of create your own way um, and uh, put a little effort into it and uh, give back a little bit. And I think things come back tenfold. I love the way you put that, you know, talking about, you know, your personal journey, kind of House of Rock is, it's not linear and, and that you have to be able to adapt and uh, you make changes and things. And, you know, six months ago, you probably didn't think that you guys would be live streaming, you know, any concerts as, as kind of the only way to get to get fans to be able to see artists. How did the live streaming start? You know, I, I know I tuned into one of uh, El Dusty's live streams and um, how, how did that start and what is kind of the music scene? What's it look like in the next few months at House of Rock? Yeah, you know, this whole COVID, uh, you know, coronavirus issue came up so fast and things were moving, you know, so quickly. Um, we were just kind of reaching out to figure out what could we do. I mean, all we've really known, all I've known since I've been in, in this industry, um, since my early 20s, um, has been live music and, and promoting events. And, and when suddenly you're not allowed to have an event and you're not allowed to have people over, um, you know, the only logical thing we knew to do was kind of bring um bring the entertainment to your living room, you know, and it, it's heartbreaking to see so many stages in Corpus Christi and, and everywhere, um, you know, that just can't uh, host performers and performances. And so, um, you know, we reached out, we actually had a, a Tropicoso event scheduled with uh, El Dusty, uh, which has been a, a fun event that uh, was a brainchild of El Dusty that we've been fortunate enough to host. And uh, it's, it happens every few months where it's basically a giant cumbia dance party and Dusty brings in some of his uh, other artists and some of his protégés 
DJs and, and uh, some people from around the state um, and basically put on a big cumbia party. And so that was actually scheduled to happen uh, the night Dusty performed. And without that happening, we were able to kind of scramble and, and do this live stream. Um, I've got to get a lot of credit to my guys. It was nothing we've ever done before. So we knew the technology existed. We knew that it was able to happen. We just didn't know how to uh, how to make it happen. Um, so we've got Alex Hernandez, which is my audio engineer, um, you know, and we were kind of forced also, it was so many moving parts, right? But one of the things that we were struggling with is, you know, without having shows, without having ticketed events, that's really how it generate the uh, cash flow to, you know, pay for our production crew. Um, and I've got such an awesome team, I, I couldn't see us just shut, shut the door and said, hey, well, we'll call you when this is over. You know, everybody had to eat, everybody had to earn a living. And so uh, we sat down with uh, Alex, as well as uh, one of our new hires, uh, Victor Delgado, and just kind of said, hey, what are our resources? What, what can we do to make this work? You know, and if we can do a live stream um, and do a few of these and, and uh, have people kind of click to donate online, we can kind of take that money, uh, cover the cost of our labor and, and, uh, and production uh, cost, and then everything else kind of share with the bands. And so it became a cool little model. Uh, we had about five or six bands jump into that. Uh, the Blind Owls were one, Sweet Daddy was one, El Dusty was one, and um, I think uh, Damon Scott was our first kind of test run in acoustic act. So they were all super cool. And every event that we did, uh, you know, it was a free, free to watch and you could donate, uh, you know, kind of at will. Um, and every one of those uh, live streams brought in just enough, um, you know, money to where we were able to kind of cover our cost and keep Alex and, and Victor employed during those rough times until we got to the next phase of figuring out how we were going to keep our doors open. So um, they, they were fun. You know, I'm sure we'll do them again. We've kind of slowed down at this point. Um, our focus has shifted a lot towards our food and, and being being a restaurant, and we're slowly bringing some things back. And, and uh, Alex, since then, has been able to find some other work in Corpus and, and uh so we've gotten a, a few hours uh, thrown his way, and then he's able to pick up some other stuff. So everybody seems to be making it now. Um, so the urgency to take care of our people is not quite there as it was in the beginning now that we've kind of figured out, you know, how everybody can earn a paycheck in other, other ways. Let's talk about the food. Um, I'm a, I am love food. I'm a, I'm a food foodie guy that just, I mean, I want to support as many local businesses as possible. And one thing that, that I don't know if people know, if you, you know, if they don't come to House of Rock often or if they haven't been in a while, is just how good the food is. Uh, before I worked in Corpus Casey, I worked for a, a team in Iowa, a minor league baseball team up in Iowa. And I can tell you that the, the what you would call like bar food in, in Iowa does not compare at all to what we have here in Texas and the, the food that y'all serve is delicious. It's great. And I know y'all are doing some new things with some food kits that are going on. I know you're doing more curbside and takeout pickup and you've just kind of started to be able to have people back in the restaurant. So can you take us through some of the things that y'all are working on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, just starting with the, the brief history. I mean, we, we wanted to put a kitchen in and talked about it years ago. You know, we didn't have the capital, didn't have the, the funds and, and really didn't know how we could do it. Um, just from a space standpoint, we didn't have, you know, uh, much real estate inside the building to kind of dedicate to a kitchen. So we ended up taking out a, a pool table and relocated the old manager office, which is a small space. The manager's office became our dish pit area and dry storage. And the where the pool table was, we put a couple of ovens in. So everything's oven baked or cold prep. We don't have any fryers or flat tops. And, you know, that limited us a little bit on what we could do. And, and we uh, kicked around a couple of ideas. At one point, we were kind of uh, looking at uh, maybe doing like a burrito type of, of, uh, of a restaurant. You know, the Freebirds came to town and we felt like, well, we don't want to come and do a burrito thing right after, you know, the experts came and were doing it. And so 
So at the time, there was no pizza place downtown. Uh, so that was our, our, our next bet. Um, so we uh, got a couple ovens and, and kind of built this kitchen around the idea that we were going to do pizzas. And, you know, we always joke and say pizzas are like tacos. You know, you can put anything on them and, and it flies. And that's kind of proven to be true. We have all kinds of cool, unique specialty pizzas that people love. And so we have your traditional red sauce and, and uh, cheese blend pizza. Um, and then we also have some uh, different things and we run some daily specials. And it's real fun to get creative with, with pizza. So we kind of built that up, uh, um, you know, meatballs made from scratch, oven baked wings and, you know, try to get what we kind of call like a high end, low brow, you know, good food on a paper plate. We wanted to be something that wasn't just bar food. We, it wasn't, we didn't want to necessarily be, you know, food as a secondary item. We really wanted food to be the forefront in many ways, in particular, the lunch rush downtown um, pre-kitchen and before we put the kitchen house rock in, um, you know, we would open our doors at three o'clock and get our prep done. So we would be ready to roll by four o'clock at happy hour. Um, and we just felt like we had a giant space on the corner of, of downtown Corpus Christi, um, you know, that we were, you know, paying rent on or paying mortgage for, but we weren't necessarily utilizing to our benefit. So that lunch crowd is really something we wanted to focus on. There's so many people downtown in that area uh, that work downtown um, and now more people living downtown, we wanted to kind of capitalize on that. So um, that was kind of our motivation to be better than bar food um, and, and make things from scratch. And so as limited as our space is, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my crew and what we're able to produce with making our homemade sauces or homemade meatballs and a lot of stuff from scratch. And you know, there are a few things that we get out of, out of a can. Uh, we don't have a dough machine. So, you know, we buy our dough, um, you know, pre-made and, and it's frozen, but, you know, we proof it, stretch it out and kind of bake it, you know, there in house. And so we're kind of in the middle of uh, getting uh, the place that makes everything from scratch versus is everything out of a can we're somewhere in the middle um and it's been a good uh, a great thing for us it's been well received and especially during these times you know pizza fortunately for us um is one of the best you know, to-go foods there is out there so when this uh, um coronavirus hit hard and was shutting things down we were able to flip a switch and go from you know a bar music venue and a restaurant to really just focusing on our curbside our delivery and our specialty foods that, that worked out well for us that's awesome. Well, like I said, it, the, you, you knock it out of the park with the food and, uh, we, we love eating it at the ballpark when you guys deliver for our, our press food and our partnership there. But, um, I just love, yeah, we love going down there for lunch and, and anytime we can. So I, I do, I got, I've got a couple more questions, but, um, what I wanted to just mention real quick, Casey, uh, you know, you're, you're a, you're definitely a role model for, uh, I think folks here in Corpus Christi on, we talked a little bit about getting involved uh, in different organizations, being an upstanding community member. If somebody's out there is listening and, and they feel called to give back to Corpus Christi, what kind of advice, where, where can somebody go? Where do they find out more information? How do you, how do you show up? Where, what are the groups that, that you see that are getting people plugged into the right things? You know, I, I, that's a good question. You know, I feel like, um, I've got a passion for downtown. You know, I got my first job downtown uh, and it was a lighthouse restaurant, which is now Joe's Crab Shack. On my 18th birthday, I got hired as a bar back. Um, and every day I would drive down uh, Shoreline Boulevard uh, to get to work. And I would work at the lighthouse, look out over the bay on Wednesdays. You could see the yacht races. You'd see so many tourists coming to town. It was just a good vibe. The people that were hanging out downtown, a lot of them were out of towners and, and you know, just love the city, love the skyline. Um, and I fell in love with downtown, you know, working at the executive surf club, um, was also just a, a great thing for me. And, and I've always been a music fan. This allowed me to work with music. Um, you know, and in my opinion, one of the best music venues in, in, in probably Texas at the time, uh, with the amount of shows and the, and the quality we were able to get in, 
um, and just fell more in love with, with downtown and that scene. So, you know, I, I realized by the time I opened House of Rock, I had a real passion for downtown. So, you know, I, I got involved, you know, the downtown management district is an organization that has always kind of looked after downtown, um, you know, and is there to kind of help things kind of grow and prosper. So that was my, my first thing. I started going to, to the DMD meetings and uh, just sitting in as, a, as, as just a, a business owner and hearing what uh, the board uh, was doing, what direction they tried to take Corpus in. And it wasn't too long after that, I was asked to join on an Art Walk committee. Um, where Art Walk started, it was every third Thursday, every other month, you know, and, and that just wasn't working well. So about the time I started to get involved, some other like-minded folks got involved and, you know, we kind of moved that to the first Friday of every month. And once we got that consistency, we really just saw Art Walk start to blossom. Um, you know, and then from there, I, I was able to jump into uh, and get on the board of the, of the downtown management district. Um, and so that's kind of where my, my most of my involvement has been. Um, you know, other things that I've been able to do as far as, you know, helping out with uh, K-Space, art galleries, um, leadership, Corpus Christi, CC under 40, um, uh, YBP, uh, Young Business Professionals. There's so many organizations out there that do so many good things for Corpus. Uh, I think the first part is kind of figuring out what your passion is, you know, and, and there's a lot of stuff to do. There's a lot of youth um, uh, groups and youth facilities and youth organizations here in town that support kids and kids activities, um, which are great to get involved with. A lot of hospitals are always looking for volunteers, but you know, my advice to any, any young person or anybody who's trying to get in, um, and into the scene a little bit is just to kind of do a little bit of research, figure out what your passion is and, you know, start attending some open meetings just as spectators and learn how those meetings work and learn, uh, who the players are and start talking to those people that you're seeing up on the board and asking them questions and, and, uh, you know, being involved and just kind of really volunteer. There's a, you know, a ton of cleanups that happen throughout uh, this, this, this community, not just in downtown, but beach cleanups in different neighborhoods, have different neighborhood organizations. So, you know, it, it almost becomes overwhelming if you start to think about how many opportunities are to be involved. Um, you know, the hard part is picking what your, your passion is. But, um, you know, being involved, I think, is, is, is the, the best thing uh, you can do. And, and uh, you know, being consistent, you know, it, it's a commitment when you get out to, you know, hitting these meetings and doing these things, you got to really make sure that you're able to juggle your schedule and, and plug things in, in the right way. Um, but that'd be my, my best advice to be just to kind of figure out what your passion is and uh, start talking to other people who are involved in those organizations, asking them how to get involved and um, start off at ground zero and, and volunteering and, and uh, doing some of the heavy lifting. And I love the way you put that, you know, finding your passion. The great thing about going to those, those open meetings is, you know, you're not expected to take a, take a blood oath and subscribe and be that, you know, you can go and learn about it and, you know, find things out and, and to decide if this is the right thing for you or, or maybe it's move on to something else and try to try to find that right thing. So definitely some great advice. Uh, I want to wrap up with anything else that's going on at house of rock, anything you want to share that our fans should know about just, um, how, how everything's going. Yeah, you know, we're we're slowly coming out of this hole. We had our first concert last week. It was it was it was a sellout, and and uh, we've been joking around the office because on uh, March thirteenth we had a near sellout with the Expendables touring reggae band from California, and that was about five hundred people in House of Rock. Our, our new sellout looks like twelve tables with people sitting at them. You know, so we had about sixty people in House of Rock, uh, following our our twenty five percent capacity rules for uh, for bars. 
um, you know, it was still a successful show, but it was it was different and it was fun. It was a listening show. Uh, you bought a ticket, you got a, a meal um, and a table with with friends, and so it was a, a different kind of experience. So we're we're exploring um, doing that a little bit more often and looking at different bands locally and, and regionally that we can kind of bring through. Um, food's going strong. We're still gonna we're gonna work on that and try to perfect it. Um, um, you know, you mentioned earlier our takeaway kits that we're doing. Those have been really fun and really good for us and it's basically uh you know one kit gets you a couple of dough balls some cheese some house of rock pizza sauce um some uh, pepperoni and you can kind of go home and bake your own pizza which has been great for at this time for a lot of uh, kids are home and, and schools have been shut down so it's kind of been become a family event you can take uh, some stuff home and cook a fresh pizza uh, you know, at your oven, or you can make a calzone or pepperoni rolls or however craft you want to get. So um, that at this point has become a permanent uh, item on our menu. We don't see that going away ever. It's just been such a fun thing. And, you know, out of all of this, there's been some silver lining. You know, we've been a little bit more creative and crafty. Our, our curbside team has been great. Um, you know, and, and I've got to always give credit. My management team and staff, we've been able to maintain everybody through this event. I've lost a couple of employees who left for health reasons. Other than that, everybody stepped up and they went from being bartenders to uh car hops to curbside to delivery people. Uh, I've got guys uh, behind the bar that have picked up some cook shifts and everybody's kind of come together and everybody's leaned in a little bit to help help for the cause and uh, keep House of Rock running and keep us kind of putting that good food out. So I think in, in the future, um, it's going to be a while before we can have general admission concerts. It'll be a while before we're able to gather in the groups that we were able to gather in you know, previously. Um, uh, but we're working towards that. And until then, we're going to focus on good food and, and a good product. And you'll start to see more shows pop up on our calendar and, and more events come up on our calendar. And, and uh, as always, you know, so there's some community stuff that we're, we're looking to and, and uh, um, kind of fill our, our dates up with, with um, you know, things that we know how to do and just being, being good stewards of community and being uh, a good event spot and, and delivering good food, good pizza. Casey Lane from House of Rock. Casey, thanks for joining us today and talking through uh, everything going on at House of Rock and a little bit of your history, and we appreciate it and, and wish you the best of luck. Cool. Thanks, J.D. It's, uh, it's a pleasure, man, and it's always been fun working with the hooks, man. You know, we've done the food, like you mentioned. Uh, we've also had the uh, um, opportunity to do some of those post-concert shows with Spasmatics and Clay Walker, different things out there in, in the Goodwill Zone, and, and uh, man, it's a class act. It, it's, it's so cool to have uh, you guys downtown and, and being our neighbors. So this is exciting stuff, and I can't wait for you all to get back on y'all's feet and get back to the ballpark. That wraps up today's show. I want to thank all of our guests, Hooks broadcaster, Coach Gene Kasprick from Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi head baseball coach Scott Malone, and Casey Lane from House of Rock. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to receive new episodes when they are live. For Michael Coffin, Dan Reiner, and everyone at 734 Eastport Avenue, this is J.D. Davis signing off for the Hooks Baseball Podcast.